Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast code acast. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Jim. Welcome to another Other Hand podcast. The end of quite a week, actually, from both an economic and a political point of view. Ton of economic news, and I know you're going to talk us through some of the domestic and international stuff that's come out in the last day or so. We've had a Federal Reserve meeting, which has confirmed the market's fears that interest rates are going to go up, possibly by a lot this year. That's produced a lot of. Equity market volatility, at the very least, if not volatility in other assets. We've also had uh, another go around the ring, the three ring circus that is British politics, and we've also got, of course, got the simmering tensions in Ukraine. So I doubt very much whether we're going to get through all of that, but at least let's start at the top of that agenda with perhaps you taking us through. Particularly the the Irish news, I, I know people will be interested in, and then we'll put that into the international context because we've had some very interesting numbers, particularly out of Germany and France this week. Yeah, good afternoon, Chris. Uh, we yeah, a lot of interesting data out of Ireland this week. We got the final housing completions number for twenty twenty one. Last year we delivered twenty thousand four hundred thirty three. New houses, which was a half percent lower than 2020, uh, but that was largely due to the fact that for the first half of last year, uh, the construction sector was subject to significant levels of restrictions. Um, but you know, 20,433 new houses. To put that in context, between 2011 and 2021, the annual average delivery of new houses was 12,119. And based on demographic projections, obsolescence in the housing market, roughly zero point five percent of the housing stock、uh, is taken out of commission every year. 
the houses need to be rebuilt, etc. Um, and also taking into account the pent up demand in the system. It is estimated that we should be building around 40,000 houses per annum. And as I say, between 2011 21, we delivered just over 12,100. So if anybody fails to understand why Irish house price inflation has taken off, you know, that's the explanation. We're quite simply not building enough houses. And uh, the hope this year is that we will probably get 25, maybe 28,000 new house completions, assuming there will be no further COVID restrictions, which I think is probably a safe enough assumption to make. But you're still only making a relatively small dent in the overall demand dynamic that's out there. So that's one thing. The second thing was uh, we got figures from the Banking and Payment Federation of Ireland about mortgage drawdowns in 2021. We got the final quarter. So for the full year, 10.47 billion was drawn down in mortgage lending. Uh, This was the highest level since 2008. uh, But in 2008, the figure was 23 billion. So it's less than half what it was back in 2008. And if you go a couple of years further back in 2006, the mortgage market was worth 39.9 billion. So we're roughly, uh, the market at the moment is roughly a quarter of where it was at the peak in 2006. And it's also, I think, worth pointing out that in 2011, uh, the market was worth 2.4 billion. So over a few years well whatever four or five years it fell from 39.9 billion to 2.4 billion that's and if, if you want the definition of a bubble bursting that certainly is it but anyway going back to uh what's happening in 2021 um you know the market is coming back but um the mortgage market to be consistent with the demand for housing that's going to be out there over the next couple of years um I would say 15 billion plus is probably the type of market uh, that we need to be looking at. Another interesting feature is, um, well, it's interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to the listeners. In 2006, um, investors, okay, private investors who borrowed to invest in residential property, (coughs) excuse me, they borrowed 8 billion which was equivalent to 19.9% of the total mortgage market that year. In 2021, investors borrowed, wait for it, 143 million, equivalent to just 1.4% of the mortgage market. So investors as a part of our mortgage market have been absolutely decimated over the last decade. Presumably, Jim, that's the buy to let investor that you're talking about it is indeed chris yeah it's it's not the vulture fund investor that's no, not no. That's... The, the, this is borrowing from irish banks irish mortgage providers yeah so yeah. the so-called vulture funds they don't borrow from the irish banking system through the mortgage market okay just wanted clarity i'm minded to uh think about the, the very first time i bought property in dublin which is actually in the late 1980s when uh, basically, you couldn't give housing away. It wasn't that long ago, I guess. Uh, although, yeah, it was a long time ago. 
Um, and I'd recently sold a one-bedroom flat in London, in a nice part of London. And for less money than I sold that one-bedroom flat, I was able to buy a nice house in South County, Dublin. And I remember telling people that I was thinking of buying a nice house in South County, Dublin. And my Irish friend said, sure, why would you want one of those big houses? You can't afford to heat them. And that was the the uh, mantra at the time that people didn't want big South County Dublin houses because you you know you couldn't afford to turn the thermostat up or light the fire or whatever it was. And given that we've got this energy crisis going on at the moment, do you think that that impact on consumer income, the bite that it's going to take out of disposable income after energy costs, might affect the housing market at all, or has the situation changed so? dramatically since that uh, late 1980s belief that you didn't want big houses because of the cost of heating. That's just uh, a function of old drafty houses and we don't build them like that anymore. We're, we're, we're much more energy efficient. Is it? Could it Could it affect things, Jim? It's an interesting perspective that I wouldn't have thought of, Chris, um, but uh, I, I think it's highly unlikely actually that the cost of energy at the moment would have any uh, meaningful impact on um, the demand for housing, to be honest. Even if it's a house with a jacuzzi or a pool, yeah. like yours, Jim, <laughs> like mine, Chris, only. No, I, I, I really don't think so. Um, I, I think there, you know, the, the reality of the market out there at the moment is that there's massive demand, there's limited supply, um, but that doesn't mean that prices are going to keep rising forever because there does come a point, and actually, we saw this happening in 2019. Um, house price inflation dropped dramatically. In fact, there was a couple of months early in 2019 where the year-on-year price comparison in Dublin was in negative territory. And that was because house prices had risen to such a level, okay? And on on the one hand, house prices had risen to a certain high level. And on the other hand, the central bank had introduced a few years previously restrictions on the amount of money that people could borrow so basically, people were no longer able to borrow enough money to afford prices at those levels. So the market started to lose momentum. And that was good. We saw this deceleration during 2019. And then, of course, COVID hit in March 2020. And the rules of the game have been thrown up uh, in the air and torn up again. And we've seen massive house price inflation again over the last couple of years um it's you know last year national average house prices are we don't have the full data yet but they're likely to have increased by about 14 percent. okay and um it's hard to see the same sort of price increase this year because of this affordability issue so um but 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 having said that um unfortunately i don't see a significant correction in house prices that would make them more affordable for more people um, and I, I also don't see this energy issue uh, unless it sort of became um, a 1973 or a 1979 type energy crisis having a meaningful impact on the economy or on the demand for housing. Yeah, th- there's an interesting article. I, I promised you I wasn't going to mention the Shinners again, Jim, but I'm going to, as usual, break my promise. And it's not this isn't so much about Sinn Féin as just an interesting article from an interesting columnist, Stephen Collins, and it involves that discussion about housing and inevitably, therefore, Sinn Féin. 
And the, he argues that the people that should be voting for Sinn Féin because of their housing, uh, pension and other policies are actually the older, well-off people. And the point he makes there, of course, is that um, they are opposed to property taxes and 90% of Irish wealth is in property. So if you want a wealth tax and you don't want a property tax, you have a bit of a problem. Um, but the other thing that he argues that Sinn Féin will favour the older people is the um, they want to lower the uh, pension age, not just stop it going up, which is what every sensible person wants to do. Any, anybody that has any eye on the state's finances knows that the pen, pension age has to rise. Sinn Féin, in its in normal populist stance, wants it to come down, which is which is a pretty incredible thing, actually. It, it flies in the face of any financial, economic, and indeed social logic. Uh, so um, the belief that uh, Sinn Féin is going to be good for the housing market is tackled by Collins, and, and he says that... Uh, the party actually pursues policies that will prolong the problem for the foreseeable future. And the reason for this is, of course, that um, every time there's something planned by way of social housing or indeed most other developments, Sinn Féin are the ultimate NIMBY, not in my backyard party. So it's, so it's, so it's an argument. And one of the things that strikes me, as I've said many times on this podcast, is that housing is a very complicated phenomena. And pretending it's something simple is is just nuts. And it, it's nice to see a, a, an established columnist actually having a go at the details of Sinn Féin's policy rather than just sort of waving their arms in the air and saying, oh, how awful they are and look at the past. They're actually now taking them on with respect to their policies. And finally, why would a young person who's interested in the environment vote for Sinn Féin because Sinn Féin are opposed to carbon taxes? So it's a real policy-driven article, which is great to see. It's somebody tackling the nitty-gritty, uh, the detail of policy proposals, which proper political debate should always be. I mean, I suppose I look at this kind of article um, with great envy these days sitting in the UK when the last thing we ever have in this country, in the UK, is anybody talking about policy in a detailed, thoughtful, uh, constructively critical way, or indeed any way at all, because we just have the circus that is British politics. So well done, Jim. You seem to have grown-up politics on your island. I'll shut up about Sinn Féin now. Chris, Chris if, if I came out and said I was going to um, vote Sinn Féin on the basis of what Stephen Collins was saying, um, I think it would force Sinn Féin to have a serious look at itself, uh, because I think, it, I think it would never believe that people like me would vote from um but anyway that's i actually haven't read the article i must do it it's worth um, a read it's a good one yeah interesting um another couple i i guess to wrap up the irish data piece uh we got retail sales for december today uh or yeah for december today and retail sales is consumer spending on physical goods okay it doesn't include all the money we spend on services so it's it's roughly 35 36 percent i think of total consumer spending uh, but it's published on a monthly basis so we can track it very very carefully and um, in december the value of retail sales increased by 3.7 percent and the volume of sales declined by 2.2 percent okay I, i'm being a bit nerdy here but I think it, it shows the environment we're living in at the moment. So positive value growth, negative volume growth. And for the full year, 
the value of retail sales was up by 11.7%. The volume was up by 8.8%. So the value growth is significantly higher than the volume growth. That is a marked turnaround from what we've seen over the last six or seven years when the volume was growing strongly. But the ability of retailers to turn that into money was very limited because of the lack of inflation in the system. So in other words, retailers were being forced to discount significantly to shift volume. Um, And that has now changed. And that's because we're now living in this inflationary environment again. Uh, So I I think it's, it's a really interesting reflection on where we find ourselves domestically in relation to inflation. And I guess also at an international level, because as we've discussed numerous times recently, uh, inflation is not just an Irish phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon at the moment. And the final piece of data that was out, and it, 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 it relates back to what you were saying about pensions in some senses, but the CSO uh, published data yesterday on pension coverage. And um, just, I'm, I'm not going to go into that much detail other than to say that one in three workers has no plan in place for income in retirement beyond the state pension. And that is a huge problem because if you retire from work and you're dependent on the state pension, you are likely to see a significant decline in your income and in your living standards. That's a problem. Um, A quarter of young people aged between 20 and 24 um, do not have uh, pension coverage, or sorry, do have pension coverage in place. And I, I saw somebody sort of saying, oh, this is very low. I mean, I don't think it's low. I think it's actually very high. I would have thought the number of 20 to 24-year-olds who would have an occupational pension scheme or personal pension scheme in place would be virtually zero. Certainly when I was age 20, 24, having a pension was the last thing on my mind. Um, and then... Oh, the- hang on a minute, Jim. Hang yeah. on a minute. Hang on a minute. Surely when you were 20 to 24 working for that uh, global financial powerhouse called AIB you had a defined benefit pension. So you didn't have to think about it. And so this is an example. You are the quintessential example of an older generation with that secure DB pension scheme pulling the ladder up behind you, which is why all of our younger younger counterparts are justified in picking up their pitchforks, aren't they? Come on, get get off your horse there. Um, I spent something like nine or 10 years in AIB. And when I left because of the legislation that was in place at the time, I left behind my defined benefit pension scheme in AIB. Um, it was abolished as if it never existed. Okay, so okay, point taken. I stand corrected, but uh, that was because you allowed some idiot to hire you, didn't you? Uh, out I, of I, I, I did, Chris. A guy, a guy I knew in Bank of Ireland offered me a very lucrative job. So yes, you know, indeed, had to do. Yes. We all make mistakes, Jim. We all make mistakes. Um, and, you know, the the, the uh, second most important Buddhist in the world uh, died recently, um, and the most important being the Dalai Lama. And this second most important Buddhist was a very famous man for saying all sorts of uh, erudite philosophical things. But he said, those of us who spend too much time thinking about the future become anxious those of us who spend too much time thinking about the past, which is what we're talking about here, and your big mistakes about moving jobs become depressed. So I would urge you to be more Buddhist-like when thinking about your past decisions. But going back to 
your pension when you were 20 to 24, even though you ultimately, your future self was going to make a, a strange decision to move to Bank of Ireland, you didn't have to think about your pension arrangements when you were 20 to 24, because at the time, your employer was taking care of them. Is that a fair point? It is a fair point. But the other fair point is that when I decided to leave AIB, I knew that I was going to be leaving behind this defined benefit pension scheme that I had never paid into that the bank was paying into on my behalf. But I knew I was leaving it behind me. Uh, But in my sort of mid to late 20s, I was not going to base a long term career decision on whether or not I would have a pension 30 or 40 years down the road. Um, that that's the point I'm making. Young people don't really, um, if you want to bore young people, talk to them about pensions amongst other things. So oh, Jim, am, if you want, to, if you yeah. want to bore anybody, unless they're just six months from retirement age, I can speak to you from bitter experience. Pensions is the way to shut any conversation down. If you wanted to, if you want to be at a party and shut a conversation down when somebody asks you about yourself, you just say, "I work in pensions." And immediately, immediately, the conversation turns to something else and they, you, you do not get spoken to again. Chris, I go back to my point that I am frankly amazed that one quarter of people between 20 and 24 have sort of some sort of pension arrangement in place provided by an employer, I guess, rather than putting it in place themselves. But I, I'm also kind of surprised that employers are actually still offering <laughs> pensions i know there's a legal obligation to give you the option of opting into a psa but um <clears throat> excuse me i am kind of surprised that actually that number of people opt in um yeah i mean given the costs of everything else that younger people have to deal with you know their rent and they're renting, they're like yeah. it, uh, et cetera, then it, it is surprising as you say that it is it is that high i'm not sure what advice i would give it i know purely financially you should save for your pension but uh, if if I was twenty to twenty five now, in a good job, uh, I'm not sure about the the, the trade off between uh, saving for my old age and just having a nice disposable income and the, and the lifestyle that goes with it. I'm not sure about that anymore. I'm really not. Maybe that maybe that's a pandemic effect or something. I don't know. But uh, the right financial advice sometimes isn't the right human advice. Yeah, I guess the only argument you can make for somebody of that age group actually paying into a pension is the tax relief they get back. Yeah, but again, they get it back, you know, 40 years in the future when God knows what will have happened. No, no, when, you make, when you make a pension contribution, you, you'll get tax relief. That's what I'm saying. Yes, you get tax relief in the sense that the money that you put in, it gets effectively added to by the government. Yeah, but then um, when you're coming out, you're taxed on it. Yeah, but that's yeah, very 40 yeah. years down the road. Um, the other point, point that's kind of interesting was that in the 55 to 69 year old age group, and this is obviously the age segment uh, that is uh, approaching retirement. Uh, one in four have no plan, no private plan in place for retirement. Uh, and that's kind of frightening, I have to say. Yeah, a lot of people do survive on the state pension. Well, I suppose one might argue with the word survive, but they exist on the state yeah. pension. Which... But I would, yeah. Which, which, if you can, I mean, the state pension is much more generous than it is here in the UK, for instance, where an awful lot of people also exist solely on on the state pension. Thank goodness you live in Ireland, Jim, because your state pension there, as I say, is is much more generous than it is here in the UK. 
how sustainable it is is a different question uh, absolutely that 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 is a point and um it's it's kind of interesting here behind me on my bookshelves i have uh, a section devoted to various pension reports that have been written by government over the years green papers and all sorts of colored papers um and i guess the most recent um addition to that was the plan for auto enrollment in other words um people are automatically enrolled in a pension unless they make a conscious decision to opt out. Um, and the government has again postponed that to the end of next year. Um, government has an incredible unwillingness to actually face up to this pension problem. And um, the, the economic challenge, of course, is that if you have a whole segment of people retiring without adequate pension provision, they will suddenly face a sharp drop in their income and you will end up with a new segment of the population called the retiring poor. And I think that's kind of dangerous. And that to me is one of the arguments as to why incentives to get people to contribute to their pensions make sense. Yeah, I understand that. The thing I would say is that we should now very rapidly stop talking about pensions if we want to retain any listeners, given what we, we said earlier on. Um, but, you know, pensions are a tricky area for politicians. They're the quintessential political hot potato because politically all of the costs of implementing difficult pension changes like raising the pension age are born today. You get to be unpopular because you've raised the pension age and all the benefits that flow to the state from that decision to pay pensions later, those benefits will accrue to future politicians and so the incentives clearly are there to kick this can down the road every single time. Let's move on. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was in the context of our remarks the other day that we made both on this podcast and to some joint presentations that we've been making, little commercial there for Jim Power and Chris Johns Presentations Inc., uh, is that this is a unique business cycle because of the pandemic. When we think about the future and economic forecasting and all the things that go with that, we often look to the past for some precedent, for some guidance as to what might happen next, given what happened at similar points in similar business cycles in years gone by. But this last couple of years has been like no other two-year period in economic history, the way in which the economies have been in a stop-start mode. And so it is proving with the data because you're just seeing such weird things in the data. I know we had some strong numbers, stronger than expected numbers out of the States this week. But we had the strongest economic growth in France, I think, since the 1960s. And headlines suggesting that Germany is about to go into recession. That's an unusual set of circumstances, isn't it, for those two adjoining countries? Yeah, it certainly is. We got the fourth quarter data for both countries this morning. Uh, German growth contracted by 0.7%. Uh, it was expected to contract by nothing like that magnitude. And as you say, technically, Germany is now just one quarter away from a technical recession. Uh, France, on the other hand, saw growth of 0.7%, which, as you say, is the strongest growth since the 1960s. So it's quite extraordinary. You have two neighbouring countries both afflicted by COVID-19, having such dramatically different economic outcomes. Um, and that's the nature of economic analysis at the moment. I mean, not so much here in Ireland, because there's a constancy here. There's <coughs> but 
looking at international data, I mean, it's just incredibly volatile and choppy from month to month. All sorts of factors we don't understand are feeding in. COVID's, you know, the legacy, the impact is just extraordinary. And, you know, in the United States this morning, for example, we got data showing that the Federal Reserve's favoured measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, the PCE Index, um, prices increased by 5.8%, which was the highest level in 39 and a half years. Uh, it's just extraordinary. Um, from day to day, as you say, this volatility uh, in, in data is, is just mad. And then if you superimpose that in on top of investment markets, equity markets, it is no wonder that we're also seeing such volatility in investment markets generally, but particularly equity markets. And Bitcoin, of course, is experiencing quite a bit of volatility also at the moment. So it's it's a mad environment. And uh, I, I just did a webinar this afternoon to um, the graduate intake in one of the big four accounting firms and the questions that were coming on, you know, asking me stuff like, uh, you know, is a global equity market crash imminent? Um, is a global recession imminent? What did you say? Uh, I haven't a clue, you know. I mean, who knows? Um, you can, I, I tried to build a sort of a logical argument to try and explain and understand what's going on. Uh, but really where it all ends up and leads to is just amazingly difficult at the moment. Yeah. And I think that uh, we're all being driven mad by this data problem, by this interpretation of data problem as the data comes out really weirdly. Um, I noticed this week, this is a little bit geeky, but the, there is, the central bank's central bank is an outfit called the Bank for International Settlements based in Switzerland. And they are the headquarters of hard money and always warning about inflation and fiscal deficits and all that good stuff. And this week they produced a paper that said that all of this inflation or most of this inflation that's around globally at the moment isn't inflation at all. It's just, to use a bit of economic jargon, changes in relative prices. It's not a rise in the general price level that is likely to be sustained. So get over yourselves was the uh, argument of the BIS. Um, and this is all going to wash through the system. It was a very sophisticated, this is all temporary type argument, uh, which, which was very interesting coming from an organization that normally is worried that if it sees any economic activity anywhere, it's a problem, um, let alone increasing economic activity. Um, I paraphrase slightly. So yeah, it's a very confusing time. And I think it's going to stay that way. And so my answer to the question given to you by your incoming class for the group, a big four accountancy firm, is that, um, yeah, no idea whether equities are going to crash. But given how little we understand about the data that is emerging, let alone likely to emerge, volatility is here to stay would be a guess I would make. And that we've got to get used to things being far trickier now that uh, interest rates are going up. And really, uh, to use a phrase that you, I heard you use in one of the presentations we made this week, expect the unexpected. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that come the second half of this year or at some point in this year, that in, inflation falls away and we don't get these interest rate rises that stock markets are worried about. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that Germany is the canary in the coal mine. 
and that in fact economic growth could be a real problem, particularly in Europe. Uh, because one of the things that strikes me about this all this economic data is that if there is going to be an economic problem on the downside, it could well be uh, could well be Europe, which is something that you and I grew up with, didn't we? As Germany and Europe always having sluggish, slow economic growth. The final thing I wanted to ask you about, Jim, moving away from economics to politics and even not talking about the three ring circus that is the UK, is that Donald Trump emerged this week in a video that he posted on social media, one of the platforms that he's still allowed on, describing himself as the next president of the United States. Uh, it wasn't quite a declaration that he's going to run, but it's the nearest he's come to it. Uh, does this uh, delight, alarm, or are you, do you greet this with indifference? Yeah, I, I saw a photo on a golf course yesterday and um, he looked remarkably uh, young and healthy. Well, re relatively, you know, he looked very similar to what he's looked like in, in recent years. Whether you regard that as young and healthy or not, I don't know. But, you know, he's he's aging well. Um, and I, I guess it is very, very conceivable that um, if the midterm elections go the right way for the Republicans, and he's still driving the Republican Party very much, um, if both houses go back to the Republicans, which is a high probability, well, that definitely will give him the impetus to make another run at the White House. And um, it would take a brave individual to bet against him winning again, unless the Democrats can come up with somebody like Barack Obama uh, to stand against him. I heard one pundit during the week suggesting that the next um, Democratic candidate would be Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's an absolutely bizarre notion. Um, I have I have been a fan of Hillary Clinton over the years and making myself very unpopular for saying that. Um, I hope she, I, I was hoping at the time she would win that presidential election, but she's gone, you know, she's, she's history. But the fact that she's been spoken of as a possible um, candidate for the presidency just shows the mess the Democrats are in at the moment. And of course, Kamala Harris as the VP um, seems to be doing an incredibly bad job, is incredibly unpopular, would appear inconceivable that she could be a um, candidate for the Democrats. So uh, I think it's really conceivable that we could see Trump back would I be happy about it? No, I wouldn't actually. Um, one of the things that definitely improved my life um, was the lack of daily rubbish coming from Donald Trump. Finally, Joe, finally, a, a small COVID corner. Uh, I believe a hero, a musician hero of yours is having a go at Spotify for promoting vaccine denying podcasts. Do you know who I'm talking about? Neil Young. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Good man. He's he's going to lose, but you know it's good to see somebody take, taking a stand, isn't it? Oh, that's great. It's it's absolutely great. Yeah. I, Should we, uh, I mean, to how much impact do you think that we'd have if we try to get this podcast off Spotify for the same reason? <laughs> uh, very little. I'd, I'd say it wouldn't create um, waves around the world. Uh, yeah, but fair fair play to Neil Young. Um, I, I've always been a huge fan of his music. Um, probably says something about my age as well but uh yeah. yeah it's great great to see all right jim listen you have a great weekend and we'll regroup at the beginning of next week there is a bottle of red wine with my name on it in a local restaurant so talk next you're week. On, you're, you're on dry january mate uh it turned wet about a week ago 
Oh, Jim. I, I, I had a particularly bad day. I, I'm preparing for exams at the moment, and I had a particularly difficult day. And uh, I told Okay, you. we'll call it a damp January then, shall we? We will indeed. Cheers, mate. All the best. Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.